Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, for your wisdom and for your blessing. I ask, Lord, for an open heart and for the courage to listen to the hard word and the good word, the radical implications of being able to follow you are deep. They have consequences for our life today and for our life forever. We ask all of this in your son's name. Amen. It's hard to imagine that after today, we only have two more weeks and we will finish and complete the entire series on Revelation. So if you're brand new and you just come today, as I see a few faces that are, are brand new today, then you have just come in the middle of a, an entire series where we've been looking at the book of Revelation. If you've not studied the book of Revelation, then uh, welcome to uh, the middle of an intensive course. Um, uh, I hope that you are prepared for this. Uh, we have so much to cover today, but Patty and I, who, who just read this beautiful scripture for us, we were, we were discussing what passage she should read as an introduction to this, and there are some heavy chapters, 15, 16, 17, and 18, and we settled on chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, that she read at the beginning there, and then verses 21 to 24, because verses 1 to 8 are kind of the rally cry that happens, you know, come out of Babylon, and the last verses there, 21 to 24, were basically saying, hey, rejoice, rejoice, it has been cast deep into the sea. And so the message is basically, come out of Babylon, it will fail, all right? If you forget everything that I say today, and there's a very good chance that you may do, because, you know, you may hit this deep sleep coma as we start to mention some of this text here. If you forget everything that I say today and you're wondering, what is the radical call of Jesus? What are the radical implications for today? You need to remember this. Come out of Babylon because it will fail. Now, of course, rushing through your head as you're thinking, as you're sitting in those very comfortable pews, uh, you want to define Babylon, right? You want to think, well, he said, come out of Babylon. What is Babylon? And we will get there. We will get there. But before we get there, we have to get to question number one. So you will need your worship guide. And so if you don't have your worship guide, if you put your hand up, um, we'll make sure you get one. Anybody need a worship guide? Everybody's got one today. This is good. All right, everybody's got one. If you turn inside your worship guide, you've got some recalibrate questions on the very first page there. Everybody upstairs got a worship guide? Great. Always perplexed by some of the people who sit in the balcony. Because is it cooler up there or is it hotter up there? I'm not quite sure. What do you reckon, Aaron? Is it, is it cooler? It's hotter. Wise decision then. All right, so uh, it must be like it's so hot over here, and they just, they have the whole row to themselves. All right, recalibrate question number one. What are the radical implications? All right, this is the question we need to answer before we get into any of this. But first, for those of you who are new today, and for those of you who have been here before for all these weeks, you're like, I know what he's going to do. I know what he's going to do. I'm going to explain some instructions here. We're going to do three things. I'm going to say a sentence to you. I'm going to show you the sentence on the screen, and you will repeat it back to me. These three rules are very important rules because these help you to understand the book of Revelation. They help you to understand how we will process it. Uh, I, I, I want you to understand this because it can be very complex. So here it is. First, I will pace myself. Ready? You'll see this on the screen now. We'll say this together. 
I will pace myself. Very important to pace yourself because in the book of Revelation, you have to resist the urge to know what everything means instantly. In fact, if anyone comes to you and tells you they know what everything means in Revelation, run as far away from them as possible because they do not know. Right, number two, repeat, uh, you're gonna see the sentence, I will enjoy the journey. Here it goes on the screen. I will enjoy the journey. The book of Revelation is about Jesus Christ. It is from Jesus Christ. You're supposed to enjoy the journey. And journey with Jesus Christ is challenging at times. And it's supposed to be challenging, but it's a good challenge. And I know that as you do this, you will discover the full character of God. It is good. Third, this was true then, and it is true now. This was true then, and it is true now. And it meant something back then, and it means something to us now. So everything is read, and this is important, in symbolic code. It made a lot of sense back then, but it makes more sense as well to us now if we understand it. So last week, we left with a central message, and it was a call to radical discipleship. And radical discipleship meant this, follow Jesus. To follow him is to love God and love humanity. It was as simple as that. When you do, you will have the privilege, you will have the honor, you will have the call to share three messages to the whole world and to let them know that we will have to make a choice between two options. And these two options came down to this. It was basically there was a, a, a trinity. Uh, the trinity was between Father, Jesus, and Holy Spirit, and the counterfeit league. You remember I said it was like DC Comics, there's an alternative league over here. It was Satan, it was the sea beast, and it was the earth beast. So with the Father, there was Satan, with Jesus, there was sea beast, and Holy Spirit, it was the earth beast. And there was this one trinity, our trinity that we follow, and this counterfeit league, and you had to make a choice between the two of them. These messages are the final messages for the whole world to know. And it is the driving force beneath Adventism, right? It is the driving force beneath Adventism. Look, when you discover who God is, and when you look at this book, the Bible, and you read all 66 books inside the Bible here, and you reveal the character of God inside you, you start to discover who the character of God is, the next stage in your journey is to join a tribe. And you're like, what? What? I, I didn't know that? I'm like, yes. It's like when you get a driving license. You don't get a driving license, and the next stage is to go ride your bicycle. You get a driving license, you're supposed to drive a car. It's like when you learn to be able to, to fly. If you learn to fly, you don't decide then you're never going to fly a plane. You decide you're going to do this. If you learn to walk as a baby, you don't decide, well, now I shall lie down for the rest of my life. You learn to walk, you decide to use those legs, right? And as joining a tribe, there are some things that happen with a tribe. You learn to become engaged, you learn to be open to accountability, you learn to serve others, you learn to be family. To be engaged means you get to be challenged to know Jesus. That's why you join a tribe. You're challenged when you come to church every single week. You're challenged in the daily walk, you're challenged in your community with each other, you're challenged to know who Jesus Christ is, you're challenged to discover who the character of God is every single day. You're challenged to be open to accountability. Accountability is a very awkward word. We don't like it a lot. This week, um, 
And because I've been open with you about, you know, working out and, and losing weight and all this kind of stuff, I received an email from an anonymous person called Mary Lou. Um, oh, you didn't know, did you? Mary Lou's like, don't say anything. <laughs> so, uh, so I received an email from this anonymous person called Mary Lou. And, uh, and so Mary Lou writes this email and she says, hey, listen, part of this accountability is a good thing, right? So she came up with this idea. She said, what if a few people were willing to walk with you, you know, three times a week, like up sanitus, like only part of the way? Now, I mean, at the pace that's good for you, at the, the rate that you want to go. I mean, she, she was very specific to make sure that, you know, that whatever it would be at the rate you need to go, a uh, few people could do this. And I mean, it was a very good email. It was a very good email. I knew, because I know Mary Lou, I know her heart. I know that she says that out of love. I know, and we've talked before about stuff, and so I know that she's, she, we have enough of a friendship that she can write an email like that to me. If a total stranger wrote an email to me like that, I would say, may God bless you, and there's many other churches you can go to. No, 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 I mean, I would just delete it. And so, uh, so I wrote back to Mary Lou, and I, and I, and I explained to her, like, I got pain in my knees, and, and you know, it's, it's uh, my doctor's explained to me, Scott over there, and, you know, it's early stage arthritis, and all this pain, and I don't think that, you know, walking is kind of hard for me, and so she's like, oh, that's fine, you know, uh, and so we dialogue back and forth, and then, and then she says, you know, well, you could try, uh, you could try swimming. I'm like, oh, no. And I wrote back to her and I said, yes, my doctor, Scott DeRude, said the same thing. <gasps> Shock horror. He said the same advice. He said, it doesn't hurt your knees. There's no excuse. Swim. And I was like, swim? Accountability? <laughs> Mary Lou's right. And unfortunately, my doctor's right too. And unfortunately, they sit on the left side of the church. There is a symbolic message about those who are on the left and those who are on the right. The sheep and the goats. I'll let you guys work that out. All right? And then you'll decide why I'm not swimming. All right, so... But accountability is really good. And so I actually, like, I appreciate that Mary Lou took the time to be engaged in that. And we need that, right? So I said to Mary Lou, hey, give me some more time. I'm, I'm working on this, I'm I'm, I am working on it slowly, but in time, and I appreciate that she took the effort and energy because of our relationship to reach out and do something about this. This is what church and belonging to a tribe does for you. It holds you accountable. You need people who love you, right? Who take care, who are interested in investing in you. It also, it's about serving others. It's about engaged in ministry. It's about saying, I not only live in this world to exist, but I live in this world to serve others. Every single one of us should be serving in some shape or form. Some of us, all we need to do is just be praying for this community. And I know some of you do that all the time. Some of us serve literally by coming here and attending every single week and actually by greeting or by connecting or by, by fellowshipping with each other and by looking after each other. But there's so many other ways that you can serve. And for some of you, there's a lot of other ways that you can serve. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, I am taking note. So you can serve, and you, by serving, it's good for you to serve, and this is what belonging to a tribe does. It's also to be part of a family, that we love each other, and we look after each other. And believe me, this week, I had so many different phone calls with, and visits with other people where you realize that sometimes all we need to be for each other is a place 
to be able to listen to each other, a place to be able to just be family for each other. And that's what belonging to a tribe does. So you discover the character of God in here. You're reading this book and you're like, man, I, I, I want to follow God. Then you decide, I need to belong to tribes. So you look up and you, you look up 2,000 different tribes online and you discover the Seventh-day Adventist church. Well, like any other church, they have a story. So you need to find their story, why they began, what's the driving force beneath them, what is it today, what was it then. Then, within that tribe, each local church has their own storefront, right? Take us at Boulder. We are a unique storefront. Last night I received an email from someone, I read it, and then I read it again this morning before I replied, and, and then I replied to it this morning, I was like, I said to this person, You're, we are a unique storefront. They are absolutely right, and yet we need to become an even better unique storefront. We have so many things that we need to do even more with that. And it is beautiful to be able to do that. And this is what I love about the beauty and flexibility and expression of Adventism. So listen to this. This is what unity is. This is what unity is. The ability to flex with a crystal clear vision. The ability to flex with a crystal clear vision. And that is the driving force, the DNA, the love for Jesus to return. We can't wait. And everyone deserves to know that you love God and you love humanity. And that's what we have to tell people, that you love God and you love humanity, which is phenomenal, right? Part of belonging means that you have to settle down. You have to choose a local church, choose a local community. So Becky and I have started looking for a house, uh, somewhere where we could live local. And you know, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's very, we would love to live local here, but it's, very, it's, it's impossible to live local here. So we started looking for places. We began in Wyoming. Um, no, 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 no. We, we were looking in Nebraska. Um, and uh, so that's uh, much better. The key, of course, though, when you're looking for a house, is you, 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 as you're driving around, you're looking at the neighborhoods, right, uh, where these houses are. And you're looking for what kind of neighbors you have. And one of the houses, as we were looking online, it said that the backyard of this house, uh, if goes out onto a church property. It was out in uh, Firestone. And we were like, yes, a church property. Great. They love God and they love humanity. Now, those could be our neighbors. This would be good. You want that, right? Of course. There are other neighbors who uh, follow Satan, uh, the sea beast, and the land beast. Right? And you guys know those neighbors, right? You've seen those neighbors. They are horrible. They do, are selfish. They're neighbors that you do not wish to have. They're people who damage other people in this world. They never give a second thought. I recently had a conversation with someone who was very upset with church. Um, and, uh, and they had a, a problem. And you need to know that I have conversations with people all over the world. <laughs> um, I, I support people. Uh, pastorally, not just in this congregation, but people from many different churches and many different places. So when I say I have a conversation, it doesn't necessarily mean they're related to this church here, but this person was very upset with the church. And here's the problem. Because church is a place where we connect with God, when people are hurt by the church, of course they feel hurt by God, right? It is natural to equate 
church and God together. I know we'd love to be able to separate and say, look, they're human beings, human beings fail, church is this, God is this, but we put it together and Satan is causing damage everywhere. So people reject church, tend to reject God as well. I remember one of the districts that I worked in, uh, people were rejecting the community that they hurt, uh, were hurting in. And, and as a result of this, they don't get to grow and learn, and, and they don't get to experience what the gospel is, and it's very difficult. So I was visiting these different families who were in their 80s and 90s, okay? And I would ask them questions as to why they don't go to church anymore. And they told me these horror stories. They would say to me, oh, one family said, well, I had a fight with a member one day. I said, you mean an argument? They said, no, we had a physical fight. I said, really? Yeah, we were like punching each other. And he threw me out the first floor. I said, first, first floor, like, you know, ground level? I said, no, the next floor, the building. And I fell out, this is ground, and first floor, and I fell out the building. I was like, that's horrible. He said, yes, I stopped going to church. I was like, yeah, no, no, I understand, right? Did, did he stop going to church? No. And I was like, oh, you know, and it's just horrible stories. And then other people told me about how, you know, they left church because they didn't like, you know, the music. Uh, it just wasn't fast enough for them or too slow for them or, or, or you know, the, the chair wasn't comfortable. It just hit them right in the spot and they stopped going. I was like, Really? I mean, just, people just didn't greet them enough. They went there for a long time, and nobody said hello to them, and so they stopped going to church. So I would ask them, you know, do, do your kids go? And they would say, no. I said, well, do your grandkids go? And they said, no. Do your great-grandkids go? And they would say, no. So, because of the hurt that somebody did, that you had, Four generations have been disconnected from the community of church, from the opportunity to experience the gospel, to dialogue, to change the life of others, to hear the story of Jesus in their life. This is what Satan is doing. These choices have radical implications for us, life or death, family or disconnection, community or nothing. And for Jesus, embrace us or give us up. Celebrate life, weep for the loss, share the universe or record a memory. There are radical implications for now and forever. And Jesus sees all of this. And there comes a day when he will say, enough is enough. And then we get to the problem one of the hardest questions that we ever have to wrestle with. So if you go to your worship guide, and this is the question, question number two, and this is a hard question. What is the wrath of God? I think you guys call it the wrath, the wrath of God, wrath, wrath. Uh, um, but if I say wrath, I, I feel like I should retire. Uh, so it's the wrath of God. Uh, what is the wrath of Jesus? And I know you want to say the wrath of God, but actually I'm saying the wrath of Jesus. Because, and this is important, we have broken the Trinity down into nice little baby Jesus and scary God the Father and non-existent, second cousin, twice removed, Holy Spirit. 
right? That's what's happened. So I'm going to remind you that they exist in love, that they lift each other up, that they act as one, yet they who are one are all one, are three. And it's supposed to blow your mind because they are all God. Hashtag Jesus all. So when I see Jesus, and when I say Jesus, I mean the entire Trinity. When I see him, I see the entire Trinity. I do not see a separation. I see three beings, but I see the Trinity all the time. The problem is we have this picture that Jesus is constantly calming down a very angry father, right? And like he and the Holy Spirit, they're constantly like huddling together, right? And so we have this metaphorical, biblical language of intercession to explain that the Father will only consider us because of Jesus. So as if the Father has a kind of like a rod and he's going to zap Pastor Jessica, all right? So Pastor Jessica is wearing the, the coat of many colors today, right? And he's like, he's really upset. It's a little bit too bright for church. I don't know, coat of many colors. Did she get a permission from her father to wear that? So he's going to zap her, right? And, and so he's very excited about zapping her. And then Jesus has to run into the father and say, now breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. Calm down. Remember, I died on the cross. Calm down. Okay, father, you know, okay, okay. Are you okay now? All right, put the rod down. All right, all right. And then the father's like, oh, my son, because you died on the cross, Okay, I will not zap Jessica. I'll let, her, I'll let her live a little bit longer, right? That's how we read the Father. So when you get to Revelation and you read about God and the plagues, it all makes sense. And you're like, oh, God, he has the wrath of God, and therefore he's going to zap people. And this is Satan's game where he wants to destroy the character of God. And you understand that when he destroys the character of God the Father, he's destroying the character of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit at the same time. He destroys the Trinity because they're all one. This is complex and this is important because the battle inside the entire Bible and our lives is about the character of God. So when you get to Revelation chapter 13, which we looked at, there's a false trinity that exists. And you've got the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast, right? And they're going to chip away at each counterpart. With the Father, they're going to make the Father, God the Father, experience and, and seem like a, a huge ogre. With Jesus, they're going to make him like a little baby. No power. Little baby Jesus, chest to the side. With the Spirit, they're going to make him appear like, oh wait, he doesn't exist. Uh, we don't talk about him. That's what we do. We just ignore him. But in January, next year, we have a whole new series on the book of Acts, Kingdom of God, and we're going to talk about the Spirit. This church is going to talk about the Spirit. But for now, Revelation chapter 15, it opens with a sanctuary again. And I want you to, to, to keep that concept in mind because it's going to help us understand the wrath of Jesus here. Revelation chapter 15 opens with a sanctuary again. We're pulled into a judgment scene. And the scene is completed. Probation has closed, which means grace has ended. The choices have been made. Those who are sealed are sealed. Those who have the mark have the mark. Whatever happens now, the seven plagues are going to fall on the whole planet. If you read the Daily Walk, you can see all the details. It's really quite beautiful about the sanctuary being filled with the cloud of God, and you understand this. But I, I want to pull you back just a little bit to try and prepare you for this. We can handle... 
uh, family justice, right? We say, hey, uh, take a time out, uh, watch the clock, um, uh, be silent, go to your room, we're good with that. We can handle maybe even a civil justice. Someone breaks into your house or your car and you call the police, and we're good with that, right? Civil justice is okay. We can handle uh, legal justice, murder, corruption, there's a system to address that. We can handle uh, military justice. Someone declares war on us for the sake of freedom, we will go fight that. The thing is, Jesus' justice, Jesus' justice, we're not too sure about. We kind of uh, detach ourselves from Jesus that way. We put Jesus over there and we're over here. Um, it's a little bit more difficult for us. If, if, however, he knows every hair, then we have intimacy, right? So you read that in the Bible. He knows every hair. In other words, we have intimacy with Jesus. If, however, he formed us with our hands, as it describes in the Bible, then we have passion with Jesus. If, however, he named us, as the Bible accounts to us, then we have identity from Jesus. If, however, he gave us power to create life, which he didn't give to the angels but gave to us, then we have potential. If, however, he is entwined so deeply that his heart exploded on the cross because he experiences everything, then we have deep connection with Jesus. If, however, he is our high priest, as it describes, and was tempted in every area, then we have understanding. It means, and this is probably a very hard sentence for some of us, every moment Jesus sustains our life is a moment he sustains of joy and pain with us. Every moment Jesus sustains in our life is a moment he sustains of joy and pain with us. Because Jesus experiences everything we experience. And as long as we're alive, he goes through that with us. So, maybe my friends, we ought to stop judging Jesus so harshly and let him be Jesus. Hmm? Maybe we ought to stop fitting Jesus into our idol of what we think Jesus should be. Maybe we ought to allow Jesus to, I don't know, be the creator of the universe. Maybe we ought to embrace that Jesus maybe knows us more than we could ever imagine. Maybe we ought to trust justice to Jesus. So where does Jesus taking pleasure in hurting people come from? This idea that we have, Satan has put into our mind that Jesus wants to like, burn people forever and hurt people. Well, we go to the First Testament and we read these stories. Well, didn't Jesus command to kill everyone in the Bible times? Didn't Jesus destroy the world with a flood? Didn't Jesus send the plagues to Egypt? Um, when, I, when I finish this series here um, in two weeks' time, Tommy Eichmann is going to preach, uh, for one week he's going to preach a sermon series uh, on the temptations Jesus faced. And I'm kind of excited about that. Pastor Jessica and he are working on that sermon. And Kind of excited about the questions he's going to address inside there. Then Dina King is going to do a two-week series uh, on dealing with gratitude and contentment. So I want you to see this. Tommy's going to preach, then Dina's going to address gratitude and contentment. And, in, and those are very challenging questions for us today. Then Pastor Jessica is going to kind of finish this four-week block with a message on being the child of God and what it really means to have a pure heart. I then have a three-week block before Bill Johnson arrives here at this church. If you don't know who Bill Johnson is... 
it's just a living legend in, in the church who's, who's graciously agreed to come and spend an entire day with us. So you need to block September 23, cancel your vacation right now. I know you're going to Jamaica, just cancel it. Uh, be here an entire day where he's going to talk about the future of Adventism. And it's a, it's a whole day long here. Um, but in between that block, uh, I have three weeks. And I'm going to, in those three weeks, I'm going to address an issue called uh, the Bible, question mark. If you never read it, right, if you don't know Jesus, what would it teach you? What would it teach you? If you allow the text, that first testament that we're kind of scared of, and the second testament, I believe you can meet Jesus. And I believe that you'd want to follow him. Just reading the text. So we've got three weeks inside there. Because I believe the pieces will fall into place if you let the text tell you the story. For example, if King Saul, back in the First Testament, had obeyed justice of Jesus and removed King Agag when God had said to him, hey, I need you to remove King Agag and all his descendants, Queen Esther, centuries later, would not have Haman alive to try and execute all of the Jews under Xerxes at that time, right? But he didn't obey the justice of Jesus. He kept him alive and Hundreds upon thousands of people suffered because of that, leading up to Esther, which actually led up to a battle at that point, and Jesus intervened at that time. When Jesus sent the plagues on Egypt, he touched on every single god that they worshipped. They would have sacrificed children to these gods. And Jesus said, enough's enough. Every plague was justice of Jesus in case, pushing them to question where do they put their trust then watch this, and this is important because you've got to look at the big picture all the time. Why did Jesus do this? Because they cried. And he responded. In Genesis chapter 4, Abel's blood metaphorically cries from the ground. And Jesus goes to Cain and says, your brother's blood cries from the ground. What have you done here? In Judges chapter 4, the people cried to Jesus. And he sends them Deborah the prophetess. In Matthew 15, the Canaanite woman comes and cries to Jesus. The disciples say, push the crying woman aside. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm going to heal this woman's daughter. And he heals this woman. In Exodus chapter 2, the people cried to God. And Jesus comes forward and says, I will address this and I will respond to this. Now in Revelation chapter 6 verse 10, we read about it when we looked at the seals, the people said, how long will the injustice take place? And Jesus responds and says, enough is enough. There was this tribe called the Amalekites that used to persecute the Israelites. They would wait for the Israelite caravan to continue. And Jesus had said to them, look, I need you to destroy these people. And they're like, oh, I don't know. Do we really need to destroy them? But you know what they would do? They'd wait for the caravan to continue. They'd wait until all the old people, until all the sick people, until all the children were left at the end of the caravan, and they would circle them, and they would rape and abuse and kill everybody at the end here. And God said, it's enough, it's enough. Get rid of these people. Justice of Jesus, he decides when things need to be done. And you have to trust when the time is up and when the time is not. It is complex. I don't get to decide this kind of stuff. If this was the wrath of Japheth, or the wrath of Khan, or the wrath of anyone you want to put in that blank, I would actually be deeply worried. I would be. But the wrath of Jesus, that is justice. Because I trust Jesus. All right? What will it look like 
I actually really don't know. I really don't. I mean, I look at the Bible, and I look at the First and Second Testament, and I look at the way Jesus has done all the things, and I don't see him torturing anyone. I don't see him like burning people forever in the Bible. I don't see him like taking pleasure in this. I see him suffering with people. I see him in agony with people. I see him pleading with people. I see him begging with people, come home. I see him using all the methods that they understood to communicate in the First Testament and Second Testament, but I don't see him hurting anyone. I see him extending grace and mercy over and over and over and over. When I would have said, oh my goodness, wipe them out. It's enough and enough. I mean, we could have done it like centuries ago. And it's like, no, uh, a little bit more time, Jay, but you don't understand justice. I know. That's why I'm not God. And you are. And I don't understand. And you do. What will it be like? I don't know. Maybe it's going to be that those who've rejected calls and pleas of Jesus, who follow Satan, will launch a nuclear attack on each other in the end. Maybe that's what the releasing of everything will be. Maybe it will be that Jesus will just let all the radical implications of all their choices follow the course of their life for a while. What I know is this, is that we are not in charge of the plagues. What I know is this, that Jesus experiences the pain with us. What I know is that the radical call of Jesus has radical implications for everyone. For Satan, for those who are lost, and for Jesus and for those who are saved. So every week matters. Every week matters. Which brings us to our final question today, this morning. Question number three. This is a big question. Long question. What is Babylon? I know you were thinking this right at the beginning. Because you're like, wow, I'm supposed to leave Babylon, right? <laughs> what is Babylon? Are you sure we're in Babylon? How will it fail? Deep down, you're probably asking yourself, maybe even hoping, are these questions for me? or for the next generation, right? Remember, last week I introduced you to the springboard text, right? I said, here's a Bible text in the Bible, and basically it shows you a big idea coming up. So there's a springboard text I wanna show you. It's in Revelation 16, verse 19, page 1139. So if you have your Bibles in the pew, you can turn to, with me to Revelation chapter 16, verse nine, which is page 1139. What this text does, it tells you the next big idea that's coming up. Revelation chapter 16, verse 19. And John has a big idea here, and he wants to give you a clue as to what's happening in chapters 17 and 18, the next two chapters that are coming up here. Revelation chapter 16, verse 19. Revelation, by the way, is the last book in the Bible, so pretty easy to find, unless you have like a lot of pages at the end, like indexes of mine, then you have to come back. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the wrath, of, uh, the wine of the fury of his wrath. Babylon, what John is saying here, is divided into three parts, dragon, sea beast, and land beast. And after it splits, it's going to crumble. What follows in chapters 17 and 18 are just two very common images that they would have understood in John's day. The first is the prostitute who's riding this beast. Um, and uh, I remember this as a child, uh, this image, because uh, um, Daniel and Revelations were, were, were preached in different ways, and uh, I remember seeing these pictures of this woman riding this, this beast and stuff, and so these were common images, the prostitute riding the beast. The second is a great city. 
New York or London, some great city, right? You remember uh, when we dealt with this, and maybe you, you weren't here for this week, when we looked at chapter 12 of Revelation, the church was described as this faithful bride. Well, she's not so faithful now. Now she's riding the beast, all right? So this is important. The dragon, here's a, just a quick summary. The dragon equals Satan, the woman equals the church. All right. So now the church, and this is back, uh, quick summary, the church has been faithful for 1,260 years. And during this dark period, there was a lot of persecution. 50 million followers, uh, faithful to God, were persecuted and killed. Uh, the dragon was very upset with the woman in chapter 12. But the dragon was really upset with the offspring, because no matter how hard the dragon tries, in the end of chapter 12, he can't get rid of the church, because it's made up of radical disciples. This is what we talked about last week. These are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, in chapter 17, we start to understand why. The woman is now a prostitute. The church is now a prostitute. In fact, She's riding the beast, and she's become Babylon. Someday, a religious and political system is going to unite again. And this chapter is full of imagery, you know, where she's dressed in all the purple garb of the priest, and she's holding a glass of wine, and she's making everybody drunk, and the beast represents a political uh, uh, organization, and she is this church, and so they're mingled together, and it's ticking along, and she's making everybody drunk. But one day, the system's going to break because they're going to become sober, and when they do, the beast will turn on the prostitute. So the message is, come out of Babylon because it will fail. Chapter 18 comes along now, and a great metaphor. It's a great city like New York or London. John mentions four groups here. He says the first three are not happy, right? Kings and merchants and sea captains, they've lost everything. The kings, those who use political power to oppress, the merchants who made wealth on corruption, the sea captains who spread the waste far and wide, they've lost everything. The last group are rejoicing. And the saints now, the final group, they rejoice that it's over. Babylon, here's interesting, is, and this is the text that Patty had read to us earlier. Babylon is thrown violently into the sea. And this is deep. See the play on that? Deep into the sea? Deep on many, many levels, all right? And here's why. John is on Patmos. He's on the island, right? And you remember in Revelation, he will say that in heaven there will be no sea. The reason he says there's no sea in heaven, symbolically, is because he's in the island of Patmos, and he's separated between his people and between this great sea. He doesn't want to have a sea that separates people. The other thing is also is this, is that the sea is a symbol at his time. It was known at his time that the sea was the place where the devil was kept, right? The devil was kept in the sea. That's what they believe. Kind of like heaven was here, earth was here, the sea was the place where it is. So the sea was where Satan lived. In other words, the sea is the place where the beasts come out. You read about this in Daniel. The beasts come out of the sea, right? Solomon was the only king in Israel's history that actually made ships that traveled the sea. That's why he was such a great king. He conquered the sea, and he made the empire travel on the sea. Jesus, remember, he cast demons, uh, the pigs, and they went into the sea, right? Jesus calms the sea. They weren't impressed just that he calmed the sea. Did he calm the sea where the demons are inside? That was what was shocking to them. 
Jesus walks on the water. He walks on top of this. Peter starts falling in the sea. They're not worried that he can't swim. They're worried that he's going to be taken by Satan. Jesus says that if you harm children, I wish that you Italian mafia style throw a rock around their neck and throw them deep into the sea, right? So even the legend and the ideas continued, even with the Vikings, even with Europe, when they were thinking of traveling further and going out in the sea, they were like, I don't know, what's beyond the sea? And the sea has monsters inside there. These ideas kept inside there because the sea was a scary place. So Babylon is sent back violently into the sea because Jesus is saying it will crumble and he will be in control. Yet, before Jesus throws it back into the sea, he says, come home. And I take so much hope from this, that Jesus says there are people everywhere. There are people in the church, and there are people in Babylon. There are people that are his. Come home. He says, come out of Babylon. It will fail. So you may look at Babylon, and you may think to yourself, Oh, man, they're all bad people. No, there are people everywhere, and they follow God, and Jesus is saying, come home. And these are radical implications for all of us. So how do you come out of Babylon, and how do you turn back to Jesus? And I wonder about this question often, because I think it ties into our purpose of our church and our life often. So uh, as I said earlier, we've uh, began to look for a home, um, a place that, uh, that we can call our own again. Um, a place that we can put down on our own roots. And you may say, well, why now after three and a half years? And, and, uh, and I love living local. Um, I believe in local ministry. I love working local here. Uh, I, I enjoy being connected here. But, but actually, uh, for me, I've always been very comfortable living kind of like out of a suitcase, so to speak. Um, when I grew up, I was born in Southeast London, and I grew up in, in Southeast London, and I moved a lot, actually, as a child. Moved to lots of different schools, moved lots of different homes on a regular basis, and change was very, very comfortable and kind of normal for me. Um, when my parents accepted a call when I was young to be missionaries in China, uh, we, we sold everything. We put the things that we had left over into 10 boxes that were like two feet by two feet, put them on a slow boat, and we took four suitcases, large suitcases, and we went to China on four suitcases, and that was it. In my last job, before I came to work at Boulder here, I used to fly probably about uh, 150,000 miles a year, and I had a little suitcase uh, in my office that had like a, a go kit, and it had like change of clothes, and I was just ready to kind of live there. Um, but there was something about home that I did not realize until I, I moved here to Boulder. Um, in fact, I was talking to Becky about this this week because she's, she's out at uh, Andrews University uh, teaching this week and uh, just thinking about home and the significance of it. Is, I think it's one of the reasons why when I came out here um, and, uh, and I said to the church, hey, all I need is a room. Uh, I really did. All I needed was a kind of a room. And, and I moved in with uh, Russell and Doris and, and, and they were much more than just a room. But but all I needed was a room, right? Uh, but I, I think they'll tell you that I struggled to move my clothes out of my suitcase into the chest of drawers. I, I was like, I just wanted to keep my clothes in my suitcase. And they had this empty chest of drawers there and a wardrobe. I was like, I kept my shoes at the office and clothes at the office. And I was like, I just kind of, I'm used to like living out of a suitcase. And, and, for, and I was going to do that for eight months. And it was uh, not 
weird at all. But, but they were like, no, actually, there's a drawer, and you can use it. And, <laughs> and, it, and it felt that way in some days. So it was a, an interesting process to go through. So a few months ago, uh, I received a call, uh, an invitation from a, a good friend of mine. And uh, you know, when, when you get a call uh, in ministry, uh, it's very easy. You just process it, you talk about it, and uh, submit your name, and usually you just say no, and it's all good. But this one was very complex. He is, in my opinion, one of the uh, best uh, top five preachers in the entire world, and he wanted me to become his executive pastor, and, uh, and I would love to work with him. And so this was a very complex process for me to go through. Um, I would have been honored to do that. But the question that kept lingering back to me was, why should I leave Boulder? I have no reason to leave Boulder. I, uh, I love ministry here, uh, and we have come so far, right? Um, and we have so far to go. <laughs> we have so far to go. And we have begun uh, a process with some friends that we realized that in the conversations that I realized that something had happened with my roots, that I hadn't actually sunk down, that I was still in some ways living out of a suitcase. My neighbors where I live right now know that I rent, and so they don't want to really kind of invest because they're like, it's transitionary. We, we talked a little bit, and they're like, you know, they make certain comments, and it's, it's transitionary for them. We're temporary. I don't belong entirely to them. So in our search for the homes, we've cast our net wide and far, and, you know, up to a, an hour drive from the church to look around and to see what are the possibilities inside there. But it means so much as we considered it. I, I wrestled through memories as talking about what it means to have a home. And I looked at this, uh, I looked at uh, my memory bank and I realized that there was a day when I took a paintbrush and I, and I painted uh, a wall in my house, the last house that I had. And the, the wall had all these markings of my kids, the height they had. And as I painted that wall, I, I, you know, the, the, the wall, I covered up every single marking of their lives, right? And uh, I just painted it. It was automatic for me because it, 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 didn't, it didn't sink in because it was just like, you know, I had been used to this. This is the way that I, I just do stuff. But as I reflected on what a home meant, I started to think about what it meant to be able to choose what it is to, to have a place that is this is where you belong, and, uh, and how important that is. And I feel the same way about Jesus. And I don't know how you started out your walk with Jesus. I don't know if it was erratic, like my growing up in my house experience, whether you just moved around all the time, and so you just got used to change. You're kind of in and out, you just kind of like flex and flow, you, you just pick it up and you move and you're kind of with Jesus, you're kind of not, you just, it's just kind of like as it goes, there's no like static, really deep connection with Jesus, which is the way I felt about home, I felt about house, I felt about kind of like stability. Uh, I just, I'm, I'm kind of like wherever I lay my hat, that's my home, right? But uh, I don't know whether that's your experience. I don't know whether you needed something that's a little bit more stable, but at some point, You've probably had, and I hope you have, like me, had an experience, which is what Becky and I talked about, where I've had experiences now where I know what it's like to have a home, where it's like to have a place that you, you feel like this is a place that you, know, you belong to, and this is a place that you, you are part of. Well, Babylon has so many pulls, and so many distractions, but uh, when you return to Jesus, it's filled with all those good motions, all those good places. 
So I read this text now a little bit differently. Found in John chapter 14, page 998, and I want you to turn with me to John chapter 14, page 998, because this, this just rings true to me, and I think it helps me see, and hopefully you see as well, what Jesus is calling to you. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, page 998. Jesus is talking to his disciples here. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. <laughs> if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to... And I will... I've got to prepare a place for you, and I will come again, I will take you to myself, that I may, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the where to where I am going. When I read this text here, I think about our God, who understands us in ways that we could never comprehend. I think about my Jesus, who knows what it is to actually hold us in a way that we could never comprehend. I think about a Jesus who understands what it is to have a place that we belong to that we could never comprehend. I, I desperately, desperately appreciate how much we belong before we even ask. And I know that you need that too. I know that you need that too. I know that you've experienced that too. But if you feel that sometimes your life is just like bouncing around and you just haven't found a way to have deep roots with Jesus, then I want to help you get back into a place where you can hunker down some roots with him. It is worth having the roots in Jesus. It is worth being connected to him. So if you want to do that and you don't know how to do that, then you can take out the Connect card that's in your pews inside there, put it inside any of these offering altars inside here and fill it in. And uh, we will connect with you this week and we will help you at the rate that you need to do. Like Mary Lou did with me, whatever rate that you need, at whatever pace you need, okay? But it is worth finding that. Because I don't want you to be feeling like you've just painted a wall, lost a memory. I want you to rebuild a wall, claim a room, and find that experience again. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, it's good to be able to call in your name. It's good to be able to feel you in our lives. It's good to be able to know that you understand us better than anything else. And Jesus, we trust your justice. For as we look at the entire picture of the character of God, we know that your mercy is just forever and forever, forever, forever giving. But God, whatever you decide, we are with you. Oh, whatever you do, we are with you. Give us the courage, Lord. Give us the ability, Lord, to grasp hold of you because you are the one who lifts our hands and lifts our hearts. And we respond fully in Jesus' most beautiful and precious name.